Hi, welcome to the Tell Me What You're Proud Of podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Perry. I'm a licensed psychologist with a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. I'm also the founder of the online group therapy platform, Huddle.Care. I love helping people overcome anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, mood disorders, and stress. Please join us each week as we share real sessions with actual clients that reveal helpful techniques for effectively dealing with anxiety, OCD, mood disorders, and stress. We'll discuss what effective therapy looks like, sounds like, and feels like. We'll follow our guests as they overcome their biggest fears and find that despite their biological vulnerabilities, they can still live a rich, full, and meaningful life. My therapeutic approach is strengths-based and seeks to find and reinforce what clients do well to help them generalize those skills towards areas where they're stuck. My model for psychotherapy can be summed up as this. You tell me what you're proud of, and I'll help you become effective and happy across all areas of your life. Thanks for listening, and let's get the show started. Hi, this is Dr. Maggie Perry with Tell Me What You're Proud Of. I'm here with Dr. Christina Pescarsi. Christina is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Oakland, California. She focuses on anxiety uh, disorders and OCD. Christina, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And so thank you for listening to my sessions with Nicole. So can we start with just telling me what your impressions were of the sessions? Sure. Um, Well, my first impression was that Nicole came to therapy, like many of my clients, which is that uh, she began with um, a crisis in her life that kind of led her to feel like it was uh, reaching the bar of starting therapy. Um, And then when she she worked through that with you, uh, she kind of decided to look at some of the other areas of her life, like work um, and relationships, and to kind of think about how she was relating to those areas of her life and see how she could improve. Yeah, I totally agree. A lot of people um, start therapy because they're in crisis and are kind of maybe thinking that once the crisis passes that they might want to stop. And it always makes me happy to see that people want to continue to look at themselves um, and face other areas of their life or not just face them, but maybe look to find more effective ways of relating. Um, So I I appreciate both helping people through acute periods of suffering and then also helping them explore other areas of their life. Yeah, it's two really different types of work. Um, And I also really appreciate it when people kind of want to stick around and dig a little bit deeper. Um, And it seemed like from the topics that you covered that Nicole is making just really incredible use of therapy. It sounds like she's very engaged, um, very self-reflective, and very open to thinking about thinking, you know, thinking about how she responds um, to her thoughts, to her feelings, and to different situations in her life, and kind of being flexible about changing that so that she can, you know, feel like she's doing better in those areas. Yeah, I agree. And I just want to comment on what it means to make good use of therapy. I think there's Um, Some forms of therapy will be, the therapist will be much less directive and Mm -hmm. kind of encourage the the client themselves to explore, primarily be doing the exploring and maybe the therapist is just guiding. And then there's more directive forms of therapy where the therapist might be working pretty hard to um, help the person get better. Yeah, help the person get better. Um, I like to see my work as like a blend in between where the the client certainly has to be willing and it's um, ideal when they're looking to observe their mind and not just get relief from 
the content of what they're suffering from at the time, so the themes that are causing them suffering, but also they're really curious about the processes that maintain their suffering, and they can generalize those processes to other times. And so I think that does take quite a bit of work on the client's side too, where I can do my best to listen to what's occurring, pattern match it to other people that I've worked with, and try to get out in front of what might happen next. But it's really the client that is not only being vulnerable about what's happening in their mind and body, um, but also taking that leap of faith and choosing to change and choosing to um, allow um, the like growing pains that come with that. And that takes a lot of willingness. Do you have thoughts mm -hmm. about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think what jumped out at me is what you said about curiosity and how important it is to be able to cultivate curiosity and also how challenging that is because when you're feeling a lot of distress, when you're feeling a lot of fear or uncertainty, um, or if there's an area of your life that you are not feeling good about or feeling self-critical about, it can be really hard to kind of diffuse or, you know, step back from uh, those feelings and try to create space for compassion and curiosity. Um, but I think that's so important because I think that's where the flexibility comes in. I think, you know, when we kind of just stop at the negative feelings are kind of spiral into them. It's different from just acknowledging them and validating them. They can kind of take over. But if we can get to a place where we can acknowledge our suffering, validate why we're feeling that way, but also have a little bit of wiggle room where we're inviting some curiosity about it, then we have an opportunity to relate to those feelings differently. Um, and hopefully more effectively or in a way that allows us to really attend to them and take care of ourselves. Um, but I think the challenge, and I, I remember Nicole mentioning this, is, the, is catching it, is really kind of noticing when you're in that moment and you're having a difficult feeling and kind of catching that that's happening so that you can use a tool that will help. Yeah, is there anything in particular that helps you help people become more curious or um, respond to their self, like notice their self-criticism? More yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think um, it's, it always feels great, you know, when we can catch it in the moment. Um, it's always nice, you know, you're kind of like, oh, I, you know, I caught it this time, like, good for me, like, I can do something about it. But I think so often, it really starts with noticing afterwards, oh, I just kind of went down a rabbit hole, like I could have done this, you know, and, and maybe next time I'll catch it. But I think what helps people to do that more often is to engage in some kind of deliberate practice with self-compassion. Um, and I really see self-compassion and curiosity as, as very much, um, they go hand in hand. And so a lot of my clients, um, I will suggest um, start some kind of a regular daily, even if it's just five minutes, self-compassion practice or meditation practice around self-compassion, which kind of sets the tone for their day. And it kind of just puts in mind the, the option to approach things with self-compassion. And I think the more we engage in deliberate practice of the ways that we want to respond to ourselves, then the more accessible those ways of responding become in the harder moments. Totally agree with you. Are there there are times where you get pushback about self-compassion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a, 
long road to hoe with <laughs> self-compassion. Um, I've been to several uh, Kristen Neff trainings, who, uh, which is where I first learned about uh, self-compassion. Um, and she talks a lot about how self-compassion can be sometimes confused with self-pity, with um, complacency. I think there's a lot of fear that self-compassion will actually keep you stuck that it'll kind of, uh, people sometimes say like, let you off the hook, and then you won't really get to where you want to be going. Um, but in actuality, self-compassion creates um, more openness and more flexibility to problem solve, to um, think about your options. Whereas I think of self-criticism as criticism as kind of like a like a dead end or like a cul-de-sac, you know, it's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm such an idiot because I, you know, screwed up that presentation. It's like, well, if that's true, I guess there's nowhere to go. You know, um, sometimes I, you know, clients and I will kind of joke about that. It's like, well, if you're like, if you think you're an idiot, it's like, oh, well, that really is like a hard stop. It's like, what are you supposed to do with that? But so, if you can, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So, so besides, mindfulness-based practices, how do you teach people to, to have self-talk that's more compassionate? Um, well, definitely practicing it in session um, and even kind of role-playing it and finding the language that fits for them. Um, some of the language that people hear on meditations can feel a little bit too um, flowery, I guess. And so they kind of have to find their own voice that feels authentic. And it's not just like, you're great, you're, you know, you're, you know, kind of like a general um, way of praising yourself. It's more about empathy and saying, like, I really understand how I'm feeling right now. And it helps uh, people to kind of think about the language they would use with a friend, which I think you and Nicole were also talking about. Um, and just kind of thinking about what kind of support would I give to a friend? How would I say it? Like what really feels authentic? And sometimes we even role play that and I'll, I'll give examples of how I might say, you know, use self-compassion and then I'll also invite clients to say what they think they might say in that moment. Um, and it's, I think, helpful because sometimes that reveals that people aren't quite sure what to say and they have to kind of spend some time thinking about what feels genuine to them. Totally agree. I, I, uh, I think a cue that there's self-criticism going on when people are looking to notice uh, where that's showing up in their lives is the word should. Um, do you yeah. have thoughts about the word should? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when clients are using the word should a lot, for example, if they are talking about um, maybe like a past relationship that was um, not a healthy one or a job that they were in that they felt they should have left sooner. I often hear them say like, I should have done this and I should have done that. And um, I will ask them to pause and to try to reframe that by saying, I wish I would have left this job sooner, or I wish I would have gotten out of this relationship sooner so that the attention is on acknowledging that they wished that they had not been in that situation because they actually really care about themselves and they wish that they hadn't experienced what they experienced past a certain point. Um, and it also helps to, um, helps the client to notice that there are other feelings underneath the blame. So when you're kind of saying should a lot, you're focusing on 
you know, I did this wrong or I did that wrong. And you're not noticing that there might be sadness or grief or um, compassion for yourself about what you went through. Um, and I think the other thing is that when we say should, we're kind of rewriting history with the, you know, what we know now. And we're really not taking into consideration where we were, what we were experiencing in that moment and how we were making decisions in that moment. And so making that shift from I should have to I wish I would have is kind of a, I think, compassionate shift to focus on like, what were you really feeling? Like, what do you, what do you wish had been different for you? Yeah, I like to say that everybody's doing the best they can with the information they have at the time. So it's a really yeah. similar topic. Um, thank you for that. I like everything that you're describing. Um, another thing that I see that holds people back from compassion is clinical perfectionism. Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to, and get, basically getting stuck in, if I let go of my perfectionistic standards, then I'm um, not going to be able to maintain the excellence that I expect out of myself. And you started to say a little bit about how people are afraid that they won't be able to, they'll have to drop their standards, but I'm wondering if you have other thoughts about clinical perfectionism. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think a lot of what I know about clinical perfectionism, I learned from you. So I don't know if this will be <laughs> a review, um, but, you know, I think there's a difference between um, the ideal of wanting to do well or the value of wanting to do well and the strategy as you've often called it of perfectionism which is kind of an ineffective strategy to try to do well at something that you care about um yeah i'm trying to think i did have a thought about that from her session um i can also jump off from here if you want um, sure yeah. Yeah. So I definitely see perfectionism as being a problem of strategy, not of outcome. And I really appreciate everything you were saying about how compassion opens um, us up to curiosity and kind of learning from our mistakes. And I think I would just take it to the, the next point that I would make about it is for those minds that are basically constantly coming up with a strategy that they think would be perfect. It mm -hmm. often becomes rigid and narrow and not uh, not flexible inflexible and so um it's not just helping people understand that they're gonna they're not gonna have to drop their standards but it's also even trying to help them understand that their outcomes might even be better so the type of person that is rigidly following rules if you can relax into the uncertainty of not following the rule you might mm -hmm. find that there's actually other solutions to whatever problem you're trying to solve and you can delegate to other people or collaborate with other people and then your outcome is actually better so you're not saying well if I'm not perfectionistic then I just don't care it's for it's really saying that striving to rigidly follow rules or thinking that every mistake is catastrophic, thinking that everything is as important as everything else, repeating things until they feel just right. Um, these are all um, aspects of clinical perfectionism that tend to actually make people's performance lower mm -hmm. and people that engage in those kind of behaviors actually tend to procrastinate more like um, procrastination yeah. and perfectionism are two sides of the same coin. Um, so the way to, 
to fight perfectionism would be to try to prioritize things that you value. Like not everything is as important as everything else. And some things can be done at 50% or 75% um, Mm -hmm. to experiment, to take risks rather than rigidly following rules to watch out for diminishing returns. So when you're doing something for so long that you're no longer getting the outcome that you're wanting or, you know, the difference between 97% and hundred percent is like not necessarily worth it. Yeah. And then also using like conscientious models. So using other people that whose work ethic you value or whose performance you value as a barometer for Mm -hmm. when you might be able to stop or, or reprioritize certain tasks. Um, those are all things that come to mind for me, uh, related to perfectionism. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, all of that is, um, makes sense to me. And, um, it's reminding me of a part of your session. I think it was in the first session with Nicole, where you were asking her, like, when did she first start to notice, you know, ways that her mind is working differently from other people that before she didn't realize was unique to her. And she brought up the example of work and work assignments or work presentations that she would spend a lot of time preparing for um, so much so that she might neglect, you know, social time or exercise or things like that. And I thought that was such a good example of how worry can trick us um, when we are aware that something is important to us. And it's, you know, was really clear that doing well at work was important to her. She really cared about, you know, doing well in these presentations or projects. Um, But worry kind of tricks us and says, well, this is important to you. Why aren't you working on it constantly, you know? And it kind of brings that urgency up and it can actually feel kind of scary to step away from that, you know, to even, it can feel like an exposure, um, you know, to take a a way of thinking about it from anxiety work uh, can feel like an exposure to take a step away from rehearsing the presentation and to go for a run. Um, And I think that it's really great that she was brave and kind of flexible to try some of those strategies and to step away from it and to see that her performance was probably as good or even better because she was doing these other self-care things that um, were not just about kind of staying on that track of, of rehearsing or reviewing. Yeah, I totally agree that she she offered a great example of diminishing returns. Um, yeah. And I think that the paradox um, here and for many people is that they're afraid to give up um, the, the uncertainty of it. So if they have something due or um, a presentation coming up, many perfectionists will prepare until the last minute, feeling like it's too um, uncertain to not continue yeah. to prepare when in fact, if you instead give yourself time to rest, to, uh, to do other self-care behaviors, you're more likely to be able to, um, work in the same way or engage in whatever activity that you're doing perfectionistically, you're more able to do that, um, at a high level in the long term. So mm-hmm. I think actually to summarize, there's kind of two different topics we're discussing here. One of them is, noticing your self-criticism and um, treating yourself with more compassion, uh, especially when you're thinking that you're making mistakes where you might not even be making mistakes. You might just be learning and growing. Um, And the other one is watching out in your behavior for when your behavior is anxiety driven and perfectionism driven, where Mm -hmm. you're having trouble um, not doing things in a rigid way or or doing things too urgently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are great points. Um, 
Great. So the other thing that uh, Nicole and I talked quite a bit about was like mood tracking and just self-monitoring in general. Did you have any thoughts about that part of our sessions? Yeah, it sounded like it was really helpful for her and um, that it really helped her make the connection um, that her her sort of narrative about what was happening in her life could be really impacted by her mood. Um, I think one of the examples she gave was like, if she goes on a date and it kind of doesn't go anywhere, she might have one narrative about it if her mood is generally positive and stable and a really different narrative about it if her mood was low. And I think that's true for many people. Um, and it can be, you know, subtle or it can be really drastic, like how much our, our minds change, how we see things. And so I liked that she made that connection. Um, I thought that was great. And she had a, a kind of a solution to help her notice when her mood was kind of shifting, um, you know, the tracking of, I think, alcohol, exercise, and sleep. Um, so that seemed like it was a, a pretty good strategy for her, although sometimes it can be hard to, to be consistent with it. Um, but it seemed like that was one tool that she was using to kind of stay on track with that. And then I think the other thing that she brought up was um, around, uh, you know, knowing that if she's in a certain feeling, that it could just be a feeling um, in response to something, not necessarily a mood shift. And so in those cases, it's more about, you know, maybe not all these self-care habits, but more just about attending to that particular feeling and not saying, this is who I am now, or this is how it is now. Um, yeah. I like your language there. Um, for both. And how do you distinguish between emotions or feelings and mood? And can you say more about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it has to do with whether uh, there is a particular trigger that the person can point to and also how long and through what different experiences the feeling lasts. You know, so if I ever notice that I've had a shift in mood, sometimes I'll try to pause and, and think back to when did I last feel good before this feeling that I'm having now? And I'll try to see like, is there, was there something that happened that I can identify? You know, was there a conversation or, you know, something that, that occurred that I was like, oh, I think that's now why I might be feeling this. You know, so I, I encourage clients to try to really, you know, pause to, acknowledge what the feeling is and to try to see if there's a reason that they might have been feeling that way. And I, I really try to encourage clients to kind of, I say like, give yourself the benefit of the doubt, like assume that there's a good reason for what you're feeling as opposed to saying like, Oh, why am I feeling this way? Or why am I feeling that way? Or like, I shouldn't be feeling this way to kind of just say like, if I assumed there was a good reason for this, why might I be feeling this way? And if you really can't think of anything that's happened that might have triggered that feeling, then you might, you know, look at, okay, maybe there's just a mood shift here that's not related to anything that's really going on, but it could be related to just general stress or it could be because I'm kind of off track with my self-care routine. So I think length of time and kind of what other factors can you look at to see what might have been contributing to it can be helpful to kind of distinguish between those two. But I'm curious, you know, how you think about it, because maybe it's different. Yeah, no, I think everything that you just said was really great. The other thing that I was just thinking is if you have a certain internal or external trigger 
then you're having a feeling, you're having trouble catching the feeling and you respond in an emotion driven way, mm -hmm. then those behaviors over time could also um, trigger a mood state so that we see that like commonly with depression. So for instance, if um, being in quarantine and isolated from others uh, makes you feel sad and lonely, and then in the presence of sadness and loneliness, you withdraw from other people through Zoom or on the phone, and you kind of ruminate a lot, you watch TV a lot, you listen to certain music that brings your mood down and causes more and more rumination, you could then start having thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that kind of reinforce depression and make that stronger. So that's one example where a feeling can can trigger a mood state and then the mood state kind of reinforces itself. Is that consistent with what you think? Yeah, that's a great point. I don't think I've put it together in that way, but that's actually really helpful framing of just how if you're not responding to it in a way that feels helpful or compassionate or effective, it can kind of segue into that mood state um, and that can last much longer than just the original feeling that you were having. Yeah, and then that brings us back to why compassion towards our feelings is such a good strategy because if while you're experiencing suffering, you have a compassionate response, you look towards it with curiosity, and then you get curious about what your needs are. So mm -hmm. loneliness can be a cue that you need to connect. So rather than a less mindful response that might be rumination and withdrawal, if in the presence of loneliness you think um, this is a moment of suffering, it's really painful for me to be experiencing this, is there someone I can connect with that would reduce this feeling? Um, that kind of effective strategy might prevent um, the feeling from becoming a mood. Yeah, that's such a great point. Like the compassion and the slowing down allows you to really recognize like what the specific feeling is. And then you can choose a coping response that actually fits that feeling and attends to that feeling. And I think when people don't slow down or they they kind of try to maybe rush to try to feel better without really thinking about what it is that they're feeling. Sometimes they can choose a coping response that just kind of doesn't quite fit with what they're feeling. And then it kind of triggers a whole cycle of shame, you know, so like some people will talk to me about, you know, um, maybe binge eating or um, watching, you know, TV all day or something like that as a response to feeling lonely or feeling upset. And we always talk about how there's nothing inherently wrong with, you know, treating yourself to some cookies or watching a show you enjoy. But if, um, it, if it's not actually fitting the feeling like of loneliness, then you're still going to feel lonely and you've kind of missed an opportunity to really attend to that feeling in a compassionate way. So it's like maybe you call a friend and maybe you also get a treat, but, you know, you have to call the friend because that's what fits that feeling. That's a great example. Thank you so much for that. Um, in awareness of our time, is anything else coming to mind for you? No, I uh, just really appreciate, you know, getting to consult with you about it and um, Nicole's willingness to, you know, do a couple of the sessions on the podcast. And it was really great to just hear your interaction and how she's making use of therapy. And I wish her the best in her continued work. Thank you so much. Thank you for uh, being here and for the consultation. Um, Thanks. Okay, bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you felt any benefit from the show, 
please let us know and share it with anyone you think would also find benefit. As a disclaimer, please consult your doctor or therapist before attempting any strategies shared here. Thank you.